Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another big episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Euros Hartley's is a diversified financial services company. Our business has expertise and deep relationships that have formed and accumulated over many, many years. Armed with this foundation and a dedicated team, we pride ourselves in excellent service, creating value, and delivering high quality results for our institutional, corporate, and our private clients. To learn more about the services we can provide, please visit our website at www.eurosheartleys.com. This episode is one where we have a very special opportunity to chat with someone who is widely regarded as one of this country's most successful, admired and highly respected corporate and business leaders, Mr. Michael Cheney. Brought up in Perth, Michael Cheney's career speaks for itself. Over 20 years at West Farms, where he was managing director for 13, a director on the BHP Billiton board for 10 years, chairman of the National Australia Bank Board for 10 years, chairman of the Woodside Petroleum Board for some 11 years, chancellor of the University of Western Australia for some 11 years. He rejoined the West Farmers Board in 2015 as chairman, a position he currently still holds, and he is also currently chairman of Northern Star. Michael provides some captivating insights into his life and upbringing and provides some absorbing thoughts and observations of a highly decorated career in business, but also his views on some of the very topical issues facing the world today. So without further ado, it gives me such enormous pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, Mr. Michael Chaney. Michael, a very sincere welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Thank you very much, Tim. A real privilege to have you join us for a chat, Michael. I must say, about your life and and what is a seriously decorated professional career. So thanks very much for taking the time out. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. Good on you. Well, to get started, one of the areas of interest that our Finding the Front listeners really find quite important point is to learn a bit about your background. And we know where you've arrived at in your life and, and the achievements are just amazing. But if we went right back, it's great to understand a bit about your background and how you grew up and what shaped you. And what I did find out uh, through my homework is that you grew up with a family of nine. Yep, that's right. Seven kids and and, uh, (laughs) mum and dad. That's a big family. It certainly is. And uh, it was a fantastic family to grow up in because there was always great sort of uh, support from siblings and parents. And I was the fifth of seven. I always reckon I had the advantage of being not noticed really because I was so late in the piece. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a great environment and all of us siblings still get together every three months for dinner. Uh, we all get on well and uh, it's been a really important part of my life. 
And whereabouts did you grow up, Michael? Uh, we lived in South Perth when I was born, and when I was nine, we moved to Mount Lawley. Right. The dad was the member for Perth, became the member, federal member for Perth in 1955 when I was five. And so we moved into the electorate and I spent then the rest of uh, my teenage years in, in uh, Mount Lawley. It's interesting you mentioned your dad. So you had your dad, which was Sir Fred Cheney, and your mum was Mavis. Yep. Sir Fred was also very decorated, a minister in the Robert Menzies government, administrator for the Northern Territory and Lord Mayor of Perth from 1978 to 1982, taking over from Sir Ernest Lestere. Yeah. That would have been quite a real insight into politics, first say, but also an impact on your life. It was. I mean, interestingly, I don't recall ever talking politics at home. Right. And that, I think, is a fairly significant thing in my upbringing, that mum and dad never really guided us or directed us in in any way, say politically in that case, we were really expected to do our own thing, think for ourselves, march to the beat of our own drum and so on. And I I think that that was a very influential thing for me that enabled us to go off in different directions, you know. So in terms of careers, the seven siblings all went to university, but in areas as diverse as law or medieval French literature or geology, in my case, medicine and so on. And uh, I think that was really because we were brought up in this sort of open environment where you could do your own thing. Yes. How did your mum go? She was busy looking after the kids, I suppose. Yeah, and mum described her academic qualifications as NEL, not even leaving. (laughs) Um, But she you know, was very intelligent and bright. She grew up at a time when people generally didn't go to university and she was a speech teacher and a drama teacher during her professional life. But then as soon as she started building a family, she stopped working and she was a homemaker. Yes. But really devoted herself to the family. It was a a terrific environment. Your father went on to be made a commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1970 and a knight commander in the Order in 1981. That was a huge honour at that point. Well, it was. And he, you know, he had dedicated his life to service, really. I mean, yes. he was a school teacher professionally. And then he went into, he was president of the RSL after the war. He was decorated during the war with an Air Force Cross. And he became president of the RSL and then became the member for Perth in 1955 and spent the next, I guess, 14 years, I think it was, in federal politics and then became, as you said, administrator of the Northern Territory, Lord Mayor, after he'd come back here. It's really interesting. And then, so with regards to your other siblings, they've all gone on to diverse... I know your brother Fred went into politics. Mm. Yeah. yeah he, he was a lawyer, went into politics. My brother John was a lawyer, became a Supreme Court judge. My sisters became school teachers, uh, I think fabulous school teachers, yes. and, and then built their own families and generally stopped working, as many women did in those days when they were building up a family. And my brother Rick got a PhD in medieval French literature and then became a doctor. Wow. GP. And so it's a very diverse set of careers. I mean, I was a geologist and I moved into business in my late 20s. The family of high achievers. So if we just move, you, you went to primary school in Mount Lawley? 
in uh, uh, at Holy Cross, Kensington. Right. Uh, okay. Initially, and yeah. then I went to St Paul's Primary School in Mount Lawley from the age of nine. And then secondary school at Aquinas College. So we used to commute from Mount Lawley through Perth on the bus out to Aquinas. Right. And really didn't think much of it, and I I've often thought about that. Now when there's a traffic jam in the western suburbs in the morning and the afternoon with people dropping their kids off at school and picking them up, we had probably an hour bus ride in the morning to get to school and the same coming home. And if you played sport, you'd get home at 7 o'clock at night. Uh, I can imagine. Back to yeah. <laughs> Gosh. But would have been a little bit hungry by the time you got home. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and... I suppose when we look at it, one of the common questions we ask, Michael, when you look at the schooling and, you know, did you enjoy your schooling and what did it teach you? And I suppose at the end of it, did you know what you wanted to do when school finished? Well, firstly, I did enjoy it, but I'm sure, you know, you sort of have rose-coloured glasses on that when you look back. There were times at school when I wasn't enjoying it, you know, when I didn't do as well as I ought to have. Or for whatever reason, but I was blessed with a great education by in secondary school by the Christian brothers who, you know, devoted their lives to the education of kids and really taught the three R's. So, you know, we had the tables drummed into us and grammar and spelling and so on, and I think got a really sound basic education and ended up with pretty good results in leaving. In my case, not nearly as good as my brothers Fred and Richard or my sisters had got, but good enough to get me into university. And in that regard, in answer to your question, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. You know, when I was in leaving, I did pretty well in the quantitative subjects in maths and physics and chemistry and so on. And that led me into a science degree. But when I think back on it, why did I want to major in geology? Well, my brother Fred had a good friend named Bill Burdett, who actually was a really successful stockbroker in Melbourne at AC Goods and then set up Burdett, Buckridge and Young. And he was a geologist originally. And so I thought, oh, it's good enough for Bill. He's a good bloke. I'll go and do geology. <laughs> um, and there's a real lesson in it because often kids say to me, you know, oh, finishing school, I don't really know what to do and I don't know whether I should do this or that. My view is it doesn't matter. Just do what interests you because as the years go by, you'll really work out what you do want to do. And as long as you're doing something and you're doing it well, it'll be terrific experience for you and it'll be useful in whatever you eventually want to do. For you in this situation then, you elected to go on to University of Western Australia and you did a Bachelor of Science. Yeah, I did. And which is this geology focus. Yeah, I did, but there's another sort of interesting example here, I think, in that because I'd done pretty well in my leaving, I coasted in first-year science and I got three Cs and a conditional pass <laughs> in physics. And the conditional pass meant we'll give you a pass and you don't have to do a supplementary exam as long as you promise never to come through the doors of physics again. Wow. And I accepted the offer. <laughs> it, I must say, gave me some pleasure that the next time I went through the doors of physics at UWA was when I was taking the Duke of Edinburgh through when I was Chancellor. <laughs> 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 but 
I coasted during that year and then uh, I went back and did second year and in that year I failed every unit. And as I was going down to check my results, Dad said to me, oh, when you get your results, give me a call and tell me how you went. So I went down and I checked my results. They used to pin them up in the undercroft through the windows and I realised I'd failed everything. So I called Dad and he said, how'd you go? And I said, I failed every unit. And he replied, those bloody useless socialist lecturers. (laughs) They wouldn't have a clue. (laughs) And when I think about that, that's a very hard thing for a parent to say, having been a parent myself. (laughs) But it was sort of indicative of the constant sort of positive reinforcement we got at home. And it caused me to think, well, poor dad, you know, he must realise it's my fault and I better actually try harder and do better going forward, which I did. So I repeated and I did much better and graduated as a geologist. You then later went on to do a Master's in Business Administration. I'll just possibly go through your education in this point. You then went on to do an advanced management program at Harvard Business School. They awarded an honorary doctorate of laws from the University of Western Australia. It all ended up okay in the end. Yeah, it did. And, you know, I worked as a geologist for about eight or nine years in the petroleum industry and I enjoyed it immensely. It was, it was a really great experience here on the Northwest Shelf where they were making big discoveries. And then a couple of years in Houston, Texas, and back here in in WA. And in the last three of those years, I took an MBA part-time at UWA. And as soon as I finished that, I moved into investment banking and, you know, a complete 180-degree turn in my career and then pursued a career in commerce. Yes. The Harvard one was something that West Farmers put people through regularly and it's a three-month course and I did it in the three months just before I became CEO in 1992 at the age of 42. And it was terrific really. It sort of reinforced what I'd done in the MBA. I made some good friends over there. We had a rule at West Farmers that when you went off for three months, you weren't allowed to think about the office. You weren't really expected to make any contact with anyone back in Perth. So it gave you an opportunity to sort of stand back and think about bigger issues and about, in my case, well, I'm about to become CEO, what sort of things should we be doing that we're not doing, what are the opportunities, you know, looking internationally. For example, we did the Home Depot case in the US and when I came back, I had an influence in causing Bunnings to start developing warehouse stores and Bunnings' history in Bunnings Warehouse has been an absolute mirror of Home Depot's success in the US. That's fascinating. So we'll get to West Farmers in a moment. I just wanted to segue a little bit to the left. During your time at university, we were talking earlier, but you had a somewhat of a football career at the University Football Club. Yeah, I Michael. wouldn't call it a career. I, <laughs> I did play in the 1968 victorious B Colts grand final. So we actually won the flag in my first year at uni. And then in the year afterwards, I played under Dick Collis, the famous Sydney Swans president in the uh, uni B grade team. And I played every game 
And the night before the grand final, which we'd made, I went to have a look at what position I was in and found that I'd been dropped. Oh, my goodness. And so I watched the grand final from the sidelines and we actually lost that grand final. And in the years following, or the decades following, really, I'd run into Dick. And (laughs) at one stage, we sold the property trust he was chairing half of West Farmer's House in Perth. And at the celebratory drinks afterwards, I took him aside and I said, Dick, I just want you to know that if you hadn't dropped me in that grand final, you would have been paying quite a lot less for this building. (laughs) (laughs) He would subsequently, (laughs) whenever I was appointed to something like the BHP board or became managing director of West Farmers, he'd send me an email or a letter, Mike. If I'd known you were going to be on the BHP board, I would never have dropped you. So. <laughs> well, it sounds like Dickie hasn't forgotten. So you enjoyed those times. Oh, yeah, they were the great days. I mean, and I've still got good friends who are uni footy club players and, and I've always thought it was a really formative part of my life, actually, a really, you know, great bunch of guys. We had a lot of fun, took our footy seriously but not ourselves. Oh, thanks for sharing that. It was, uh, I mean, that's pretty important. So, Michael, when you went back into the workforce in terms of it being a geologist, you said you travelled and you got a, a bit of an insight into northwest Western Australia, the US and, and Indonesia. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that as formative background because you spent eight years doing this and it gave you an insight into this world of petroleum. Yeah. Well, one of the great advantages of travel, I think, is that it opens your eyes to the different ways people are doing things. And, you know, I was really fortunate when I joined what's now Woodside as my first employer. It was called Bocal or the Burma Oil Company of Australia, operating in the Northwest Shelf and making those huge gas discoveries. I was really fortunate to have outstanding bosses, managers, people like David Powell and Dave McDonald, exploration manager, and they had developed processes and and practices and so on that were really world-class. I then got transferred to the US for a couple of years, and I'd expected there to see how the big guys do it properly. And what I found was that the way we were doing it in Perth was far better than the way it was being done in Houston. Right. In terms of the science and the professionalism when you're doing seismic or drilling a well and so on, evaluating the results of a well, what we were doing in Perth was absolutely first class. And so it was useful from that regard. But I, uh, And then we worked in Indonesia where obviously there's a totally different culture a very difficult operating environment in terms of how people behave, you know, the expectation in that case in those days of backhanders and so on if you wanted to get a permit. Yes. None of which any of us got involved in, but a very different operating environment. And then, you know, just being in those countries out in the field and seeing the different standards of living and so on is, I think, just very useful in terms of appreciating what you've got back home very diverse cultures when you look at Australia, the US and Indonesia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So would you say when you came away that you loved it? Oh yeah. I, my, my experience in the oil industry was absolutely fantastic. And again, I've made a number of good friends there. We still get together once a year. Many of the guys who were working and 
guys, I mean females and males, who are working in those early days on the Northwest Shelf. And, you know, it's a bit like yesterday uh, when you catch up with them. Fantastic. Mm. The reason I ask that, Michael, is that you clearly developed a passion for oil and the petroleum sector. And this led to the ultimate where you started out with, as you say, Woodside Burma, which was then to become Woodside Petroleum. And you were um, asked to join the board and ultimately be chair of Woodside, Mm. which was in 2005. Yeah. Well, it was it was a tremendous honour, really, for me to go back as chairman of Woodside 25 years after I'd left the company as a geologist. And in a sense, nothing had changed. I mean, geology is geology. Um, many more wells had been drilled and discoveries made and so on. But it was nice to be back in familiar territory. And some of the people who were there when I left, was still there when I went back as chairman. Is that right? Not many, but a couple. And uh, I enjoyed my years back there. Well, you went on to be on the board for 13 years, which was quite a significant period of time. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, if we go back, after you finished up with as a geologist with Woodside Petroleum, when you were doing your petroleum geology, you then came back and you were in Western Australia and you joined the Australian Industry Development Corporation. And then in 1983 you joined a company called West Farmers. Yeah, that's right. And in the, fact, I joined the Australian Industry Development Corporation in Canberra. It was a government-owned investment bank that was, believe it or not, set up because the major Australian banks weren't interested in financing resources projects. Right. They saw themselves really as home lenders and they had set up a consortium bank called Australian Resources Development Bank because they didn't want to do it themselves. And the government, I think that was in response to the government setting up AIDC. Jack McEwen from the Country Party set it up. And I joined them in Canberra and I found them to be the most professional, profit-driven organisation I've ever worked with. Right. I had at that point really highly professional people. A guy named Arthur O'Sullivan was my boss and just fantastic in dotting the I's and crossing the T's and having a clear vision about what you're supposed to be doing and going about it in a very professional way. And after about nine months there, they asked me if I'd like to go back and set up the office in Perth, which I did. And I worked there for a couple of years and I was due to go be transferred back to Sydney, I think it was, when one of our big clients, West Farmers, said they were looking for a company secretary and would I like to think about it? And I said, yes, I would. And I went down and met Trevor Eastwood, who was only seven floors below me in Allendale Square, and John Benison, who was CEO at the time. This was in 1983. And I joined as company secretary. And within the year, we started working on listing the co-op. And I became a CFO in that time. And we went public in 1984. And the the success of West Farmers is way beyond anything any of us imagined at the time. And I remember sitting with Trevor Eastwood talking about what we'd like to see in the next three years. You know, we'd like to see our profit grow from 10 to 12 million to 14 to 16 or something. And it actually went from 10 to 25 to 46 to 80 and so on. And the fantastic thing is if you put $1,000 into West Farmers when we went public and left it there and reinvested dividends, you'd now have $550,000. Wow. 
compared to 30,000 for the stock exchange as a whole. So it's been success way beyond anyone's imagination. And I think due to the clarity of vision, actually, of purpose of the organisation, which Trevor, I think, should really be credited for as saying from the outset, we're a listed company. Our purpose is to provide good returns to shareholders over the long run. But we can only do that if we look after all the stakeholders' interests and customers, employees, suppliers, the environment, the community and so on. And so while the company's been hugely successful financially, the gratifying thing is that it's developed a great reputation in the community. And so if you think about surveys of most respected companies or brands and so on, West Farmers and Bunnings and Kmart are right up at the top. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we've been focused on the interest of shareholders and stakeholders and have developed a great reputation and been financially successful. They go hand in hand and you can't have long, great long-term returns for shareholders without doing all the other things properly. And did that come naturally, this building... There were the real focus on long-term value creation. In my first year at West Farmers, Trevor said to me, oh, by the way, the other thing you're going to be in charge of is corporate planning. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. I knew nothing about corporate planning. (laughs) And I read an advertisement in the Financial Review for a thing called the Argenti System of Corporate Planning. So I sent off $500 or something and back came some A four size manuals and I put them up on the shelf because I was busy doing something else. And Trevor wandered in one day and said, what are these? And I said, oh, they're the corporate planning manuals I'm (laughs) planning to use. (laughs) He took one off the shelf called the CEO's manual and he came back highly excited the next day and he said, this is exactly what we've been looking for. So we adopted the Argenti system of planning and it's been adopted every year since 1984. So every year, every division of West Farmers does its Argenti plan and they're all consolidated into a group plan, which is reviewed by the board. And We did that this year, just last month. The value of that system is that it's so logical. It's what's your purpose? What are your success measures, your KPIs? How are you going against them? Where do you hope to get to? Do a SWOT analysis, you know, what are your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats? And then what are your strategies to build on the strengths and counter the weaknesses and so on? And it's that clarity of process that I think has really enabled West Farmers to develop a really strong shareholder focus culture right down through the ranks. So if you go into a Bunnings warehouse store, the manager will tell you, Uh, our return on capital for the 12 months to last month was X rather than our sales or some other measure. Uh, And so I think that's why the company's been very successful. And it's a lesson to me because the corporate plans you often see in organisations are much woollier and full of sort of vision and so on, but without the steps that you need to get there. Right. And so do you apply that Argenti planning process to each division. So, for example, I look through the diversified portfolio of businesses within the West Farmers stable. Yep. And if you go back over time, you look through the Bunnings, now, which then goes through to the Kmart group, including Target. You've got health, chemicals, energies, and fertilizer. Yep. 
industrial and safety and then the new initiative of West Farmers One Digital. But if you took each one of those, do you apply that to each business? We do. And I would say up until last year, it was directly applicable to every business. The difference from last year is that if you take something like One Digital or the data ecosystem that we're developing, it doesn't lend itself to a return on capital measure. Right. If you're building a chemical plant, you can say it's going to cost X. We expect to earn this much profit from it and you can model it. With developing a data ecosystem where you're basically aggregating data from all the businesses in the group and using it to enhance customers' experiences and the welfare of the company, you can't actually project capital and project earnings before interest and tax the way you can with the other ones. However, they will do an RG plan and they'll modify it accordingly because of its value in having this sort of logical set of steps in looking at a SWOT analysis and then strategies flowing from it. If we just go back a little bit, Michael, and we look at the iconic Bunnings business, which is a very big driver of return for West Farmers, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, here you are, you started in 1983, you've, the company's listed You've become managing director in 1992. The company is progressing well. As you can, you've said, the return on for shareholders is progressing and growing. Bunnings, how did that come into the frame and, and how did it evolve into what it is now? You mentioned earlier about the warehouse, but if we could just take it and, and I mean, who was the genius who came up with the Bunnings sausage sizzle? Joe Boris, but if we go back a step, the Bunnings examples, I think, are really useful uh, illustration of the principle of logical incrementalism, which we adopted when we went public. Professor Brian Quinn in in Dartmouth University had done some research on what makes a successful company. And he expected to find that they'd had some long-range vision about where they wanted to get to and they'd marched towards us. What he found, rather, was that they didn't have that vision. They moved forward in logical steps. He called it logical incrementalism. And I've always described West Farmers as going forward on a number of different fronts. And if they work out going further, if they don't work out pulling back and going forward on the ones that do work out. So if you look at Bunnings, we originally took a 10% placement because we're interested in the forest business. Right. Tom Bunning came to see me and said, we're being raided by a corporate raider. How about if West Farmers takes a 10% interest? And I said, well, if we did, you should understand we'd eventually like to own the whole company, which was controlled by the family at that time. And to my surprise, he said, well, better West Farmers than this other guy. And so we took that 10%. We then bought the raiders 10% to move to 20 Eventually, we took another 26 from Hawker Sidley still believing that the main prize was the forest logging business. The hardware business was very small at that point. Right. I went to Harvard and at that point we owned 46% of Bunnings and I studied the Home Depot case where it had this incredible straight line of uh, profit growth over a couple of decades and I came back. And I mentioned this at the board. Now, fortunately, at that time, the hardware business was being run by Joe Boris, who was one of the best operators you could ever come across. Right. 
And Joe had also been thinking, I think, about this whole issue. And within the next year, I think it was, we started the first hardware warehouse store at Sunshine in Victoria. I think when we took over, when we owned 46% of Bunnings Hardware was probably contributing, I don't know, seven or eight million of earnings and profit. Today, it's two and a half billion. So it's been the same straight line that we saw at Home Depot. And the sausage sizzle, the whole sort of culture of each store and so on, is uh, all due to the efforts of Joe. Right. Uh, just a fantastic retailer and team builder and I think was a real inspired leader in those early days. And really connected the community. Yeah, that's we- right. And the sausage sizzle was, was brilliant because it did connect the community. People felt this ownership with Bunnings. And the result now we see decades later is that Bunnings is sort of a synonymous word with hardware and you get prime ministers talking about sausage sizzles or going to Bunnings on the weekend and so on. I was doing some homework and I saw a very interesting issue that arose with the Bunnings hot dog that the onion had to be on the bottom of the sausage so that there was not a hazard if it was on the top, it might slip off and someone could trip or slip on it. Yeah, and actually it was a very real issue. And, you know, over the last couple of decades in all companies there's been this increased focus on safety and yes. keeping safety statistics and getting accident rates down. And there have been dramatic falls. You know, the if you look at a company like BHP, you'd find their lost time injuries are 1% of what they used to be 20 years ago, 1%. And so in Bunnings, one of the biggest causes of accidents is what we call slips, trips and falls. And people were buying a sausage with onions on top, taking them in, onions would fall off, customers would fall over. (laughs) And so there was a bit of joking about, you know, the nanny state at Bunnings putting the onions on the bottom, but it was for very good reason and their safety stats have improved accordingly. It was quite an interesting piece of information and an observation that the little things matter. Yeah, that's right. Bunnings has continued to grow and and it continues to be a, a key part of the business. When we look at the chemicals, energy and fertilisers business, and maybe I take a step back, it must have been quite something to be a part of a business or a corporation that was founded in 1914 with the intention of assisting farmers in growing and marketing their produce through cooperative action. It became known as the Farmers Company or simply by its telegraphic address, West Farmers. I say that for the listeners because that's the background and I, then I, I allude to the chemical energy and fertilisers business, which the fertilisers is concentrating more on the broad acre. side of Western Australia. You've got chemical in terms of the mining. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into that as an integral part of the West Farmers business? Yeah, and I think the fact that West Farmers was a co-op was probably a big influence in the sort of culture that we adopted when we became a listed company. That is about the need to look after all stakeholders because co-ops are there to look after their members who are trading with them. And so it sort of came naturally to us, I think, that we should be customer-focused and employee-focused and supplier-focused and so on. 
And I think that's why the company's been very successful. But co-ops have a different purpose than listed companies do. And so we made the decision to go public because we weren't really a pure cooperative anymore by 1983. And by that I mean that some of our businesses had nothing to do with our members. Right. Members being shareholders of a co-op. And many of our members did business with our opposition, elders, for example. Yes. And so the company, through its diversification over a few decades, had moved away from being a pure co-op. And we decided that the members should get the benefit of the success of the company by owning shares in a listed company. And when we went public, we said, well, now our purpose is different. People buy shares in West Farmers because they want to get a better return than if they buy shares in Elders or Commonwealth Bank or something else. And so our purpose is to provide satisfactory long-term returns to our shareholders. And that really has become the culture of the company, but hand in hand with the need to look after the interest of all stakeholders. And so I think that original co-op history was very important in, in the formulation of the company going forward. Because we had that financial objective, as opposed, say, to our purpose is to be Australia's great agribusiness, it allowed us to diversify in a way that one could never have imagined. So, for example, when we bought Western Collieries Coal Mine, Doug Shears, who was a big agribusiness personality, said to me, you guys have lost your mind. You're supposed to be an agribusiness company. And I said, no, we're a shareholder return company and we think this will enhance our shareholder returns, which it very much did. And so if you look at the makeup of the company, when we went public in 1984, the fertiliser business that you referred to contributed about 70%, 70% of our profits. We still own that fertiliser business. It's still producing about the same number of tonnes or maybe a few more, and it's contributing 1% of the group's profits because we've diversified so widely from that. We had a rural division which was like the elders you know, stock and station agent yes. business called West Farmers Rural and then called Landmark. And we eventually sold that because somebody offered us a price that was way above what we thought it was worth. And the interesting thing is none of our farmer shareholders who still own shares in West Farmers complained about it because they'd done extremely well financially and basically supported the whole philosophy of diversification of what used to be their co-op. It's very interesting. The business has diversified further, and I alluded to it earlier, but with industrial and safety, the backbone and the foundation of the business remains strong, and, and it, but it's continuing to grow, and you can see that with the advent of One Digital, that's the next path forward. Do you think, though, there'll still be room for acquisitions on the, on the broader areas of chemicals, energy and fertiliser, even though it is only 1% now? But would you... Yeah. Well, the... The 1% is fertilisers. Chemicals in that division is much bigger than fertilisers. And so that division of fertilisers and chemicals is a big contributor to our profits. Yes. And there's scope for them to make acquisitions as there is for every one of the divisions of West Farmers. One of the challenges of acquisitions is that 
they're very costly. You know, if you're taking over a listed company, for example, people expect you to pay a 30% premium. Well, the problem with the 30% premium is that markets already valued the company at what it thinks is fair value, and you're paying 30% more. And as soon as you take it over, the 30% disappears, and you've got what the market was valuing. That can be justified if it's a relatively small thing. So in the case of Australian pharmaceutical industries, which we've just completed the takeover of, it's less than a billion dollars, which in the scheme of things for a company like West Farmers is not that big. And so you can afford to pay a premium, in that case probably a couple of hundred million, because it has the potential to develop into a much bigger business. At the end of the day, the best way to expand is organically. So the fertiliser company became a chemicals company by producing ammonia and ammonium nitrate for explosives and so on and has doubled the size of plants and continues to look at doing that. For example, we now have an ammonia plant under evaluation. And in the case of Bunnings to go from no warehouse stores to hundreds of warehouse stores without paying any goodwill for the expansion is far more profitable than going off and buying someone in the public stock market. And it just continues to be a growth aspect in terms of Bunnings. Will you continue to roll out stores? Yeah, we are. And we're expanding the product range as well and moving into other areas like Beaumont Tiles and Toolkit Depot, uh, which was Adelaide Tools. We Every time we do our five-year plan each year, we certainly have this outlook for continued growth in all of the divisions. Michael, the question that I had on this particular part of your life with regards to West Farmers is you did finish up with West Farmers in 2005 and then you returned to the board in 2015. In the meantime, you had a number of board roles. We talked to you about you were a director of BHP Billiton for 10 years. In 2005, you were elected President of the Business Council of Australia. In 2005, you were also elected Chairman of National Australia Bank. And then in 2005, you also joined the Woodside Petroleum Board as Chair. So you decided to change tack a little bit from your time at West Farmers and you, it appears externally that you made a purposeful decision, right, I'm going to take my knowledge that I have across these broad range of businesses and an understanding and apply it to another broad range of business from a corporate directorship role and in many cases a chair role. What caused that change of direction? Well, I'd been CEO at West Farmers for 13 years, which is a long time to be CEO and it's pretty intense and full on. So I decided to retire from that when I was 55, but I was still pretty energetic and I was interested in business and I was invited to join other boards. And so uh, I'd been on the BHP board, I think, since about the mid-90s and I finished up there. I actually, Don Argus, and I don't think I've said this publicly, but Don was lining me up to be chairman of BHP and and, uh, then he called me after the 2007 financial crisis and said, mate, (laughs) you've got to go and chair NAB because they're having problems and they've had some options, trading problems and so on. So anyway, I joined the NAB board and became chairman there and because I'd been CFO, I, I knew and I'd done an MBA, I knew a fair bit about 
banking or about finance. And so it, it was a fairly easy transition to make. And I went on the Woodside board as well, which, you know, as I mentioned, was yes. sort of returning back to my roots. And I enjoyed those roles. It's not as much fun being a chairman or a non-executive director as it is being a CEO because the CEO is much more closely involved day to day and has a lot more influence on what's happening. But the role of the board and the chair is obviously very important in appointing the right CEO, making sure the culture is right and the, and the CEO and management are doing the right things and we have the right policies and so on. And so it's, it's quite a different sort of career path. Yes. But it's one I've enjoyed having been a CEO, you know, for 13 years. It's interesting you mentioned NAB. You were chair of NAB through the GFC. And I, I look at that period of time and it was a particularly notable period of time for the financial sector globally. How did that go from a being a chair perspective and the responsibility of the bank in your, yeah. in your accountability? How did that feel at that period of time when there were so many uncertainties globally about what was going? I mean, I remember I was living in Sydney at the time and you had people depositing their funds in all four of the banks. Yeah, that's right. To spread the risk. It was it was a time of huge uncertainty and the threat of an absolute meltdown of the world financial system, you know, with Lehman going under. And we had some crisis meetings with the Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd at the time, the chair and the CEO of the four major banks and probably one or two others. And there was a very real possibility then that, and advocated by some, that the government would take an equity interest in the banks. In fact, fortunately, that didn't occur, but the government did provide further guarantees of deposits and so on to much bigger sums than had been the case. And the Australian banks came through this all very well, mainly because they hadn't been involved in, in the sort of subprime mortgage debacles that occurred elsewhere and, you know, were strongly capitalised. But those government guarantees were pretty important at the time. Fortunately, the actions of governments around the world prevented a meltdown of the financial system, and then there were further requirements put on banks for capital management and so on that have been helpful and have prevented that happening since. It was a very interesting, and thanks for sharing that, it was, a, it was such an interesting time in terms of the ongoing pressure which was placed on the banking system from that year onwards, in essence. Mm. I know with NAB, which was more focused on business lending, there was almost zero credit growth through that period. Yeah, that's right. But how did you find trying to operate the bank at that level, knowing what you've just been through and, and what was actually happening on the ground? Being a CEO or chairman of a bank is actually pretty challenging because you've got three direct competitors. And the markets and the press are constantly comparing what you're doing with the other three. And so everyone is scrambling to increase market share, i.e. take it from the others, and the others are trying to take it from you. And it is a very competitive situation. But when you overlay that with a financial crisis that occurred around the world, it, it made life pretty interesting. You know, I... I was actually coming down the Grand Canyon in a raft when uh, the financial crisis 
peaked and I had a satellite phone and I decided not to finish the trip, which is probably a one-week thing, and I got out of the raft and I walked up the Grand Canyon to the lookout, main tourist lookout place by myself. And, you know, I hiked up the 5,000 feet or whatever it is and I'll never forget emerging at the top, at the rim, and some tourist looking at me saying, Where'd you come from, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) I actually got a flight out of there and got straight back to Melbourne to to actually be there at this time of great crisis. And fortunately, the bank was in good shape. But none of us knew actually what was going to happen and, you know, how bad this could actually get. Thanks for sharing. One of the features that I noticed from that period of time was NAB's introduction of the time to break up advertising campaign. And it it enabled you to increase your market share in the mortgage sector. Yeah. That's quite innovative at the time. Well, it was. But it's really interesting looking back on that and, and thinking about the Royal Commission's conclusions as well. As I mentioned earlier, it is a real challenge for the CEO of any bank in Australia to have three such equal competitors. And the danger, because many investors are very short-term focused, the danger if you attempt to break up, if you like, from the other three by, for example, offering lower interest rates on your loans, is that the market will crucify you because your profits are falling in the short term. And I've often thought, if any of the banks were privately owned, they would have taken a different approach over the last decade or the, certainly the decade before the Royal Commission into the banking. At the time, banks were earning 15% return on equity, which in, by world standards was very high. But the markets demanded 15.5 or 16. Yes. You know, where's your growth coming from? And the banks then set out to develop incentive schemes and so on for their people to win market share from each other, some of which led to bad behaviours down uh, within the ranks, all of which was very regrettable. If any of the banks had been a private company, I think it would have killed it in that the owner would have said, gee, we're earning 15% return on equity. I don't mind if we earn 13 next year or 12 or 10, which is after tax a fantastic return. And we'll just go out and win market share from the others by lowering our interest rates or our fees and so on. The challenge for a listed bank to do that is hard to overestimate. It's a day-to-day war really against profit reduction. Yes, And that's because they care not about their remuneration, frankly, but about their reputation. No bank chief wants to be known as the laggard, the one who failed compared to the other three. And so it works against long-term strategy, I think, because of the particular nature of the banking sector in Australia where you have these four pretty equal competitors. Very interesting. Michael, in 2004, you were appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia for Service to Business Sector through innovative leadership and management strategies and to the community through involvement and support for a broad range of artistic 
cultural and scientific organisations. That must have been a big moment in your life. Well, it's a great honour. Yeah, it's a great honour. And it only occurs if some other people think you're worthy of it. You can't go nominating yourself for that sort of thing. Right. And so that's part of the honour, really, that your peers or people out there have thought that you're worth nominating. At the end of the day, achievements like achievements in business and so on that are referred to there are a team effort. And you feel slightly cheapishly about taking the credit, for example, for a very successful company because it took a whole lot of people to achieve that. But it is a great honour nevertheless. Huge honour and and congratulations. I wanted to just sort of tilt now to your appointment as Chancellor of the University of Western Australia in 2006. We've got a number of appointments here, as I've just highlighted, but this one was quite interesting. They all happened around the same time, but this one you, you then held for quite a while, retired in 2017, but education is quite a passion of yours, and it was where you were educated as well. Mm. from a tertiary level. What was of interest to become Chancellor? Was it that passion that drove you there? Well, I've always been interested in in education, in school and tertiary. And what happened at the time was Ken Michael was the Chancellor and he was appointed Governor of Western Australia. And so he had to finish up as Chancellor and I was approached to take over from him. And I was very pleased to do so. It's a great institution, you know, it was one of the world's top 100 universities in the top 1%. And so I was interested in coming on board as effectively chairman of the Senate, of the board. And I enjoyed those those years. I mean, the university sector as a whole has faced all sorts of challenges over the last couple of decades, funding challenges, you know, obviously COVID subsequent to my being chancellor has been a huge challenge for them but the sort of relentless need to rise in the research rankings because that attracts students internationally and and nationally is just part of life at a university. But I I enjoyed my involvement there. Yes. I was going to ask you on that front, the challenges at university level with regards to online versus attending in person. You've got, say, for example, a university such as University of Western Australia with such amazing infrastructure and buildings and history. The challenge to get students to attend now when they can do things online, how do you think the universities are going to adapt to that? I think this is a huge issue and a huge challenge for universities. You know, when you and I, Tim, went to university, there was a campus life. You, In my case, I went down at sort of 8.30 and left at 6. Most days, I think we had Wednesday afternoon off and played golf, but it was a full-on experience. And so you made a lot of friends, you had a social life and so on. Over time, that's changed and lectures are now almost universally online if you want them to be. Some of them are in person. Tutorials, which used to have eight or nine people, seem to have 25 and people don't spend nearly as much time on campus. One of the changes has been that when I went to university, we worked all summer to earn money to support ourselves during the year. Now what happens more commonly is that people have part-time jobs during the year and many take the summer off to take holidays. Yes. 
you know, skiing or something. And the result is that they don't want to be on campus. They want to have the flexibility of working and to be able to do their lectures online, often playing on fast, double paced so that they can sort of listen and then stop it and slow it when it's something of interest and so on. But it's just not the same experience. What to do about it is the big challenge because it's the customers are demanding that. Yes. And if a university says, well, we're not going to have our lectures online, we're going to demand that you're all down here full time, you would lose a heck of a lot of students and you'd find the economics were problematic. I think there's got to be, you've got to have a combination. I'd like to see universities say, well, we want a minimum attendance at lectures and tutes and so on and we'll have a hybrid situation. Now, they'd tell you they do that now, but in my view, people aren't spending enough time on campus. As you say, it's a bit of a challenge. And you you retired from there in 2017. There's clearly been some big challenges with regards to COVID since. Yeah. So it's only, yeah. I mean, the advent of technology combined with COVID has resulted in, I would say, some very deep discussions around how to address that issue. Yeah, that's right. And I haven't been involved in it, but I'm sure that's been the case. I mean, in a sense, having your lectures online was beneficial during COVID when people simply couldn't go. And so you'd say that's a benefit, but in another way, it sort of exacerbated the issue because people got used to it. Yes. The other point about it, I think, is that you can now go online and get some sort of certificate from MIT or Harvard for doing a course of some sort and it doesn't you don't have to stretch your imagination too far to say well when will you be able to do a degree like that at Harvard and if you can why would you go to Curtin or UWA or or Murdoch and so I think there's an existential threat there potentially for the universities and in some people's views we won't have the I don't know what it is now, 26, 27 universities in Australia in a couple of decades, whether that's through consolidation or some just not continuing, uh, time will tell. But uh, there are big strategic issues that I'm personally not involved in now, but I I think must be pretty challenging for those who are. Yes, yes. Michael, I'm conscious of time, but I know that at that point, when retiring as Chancellor of the University of Western Australia, you then rejoined. So we're now at 2015 to 2017. You rejoined the West Farmers Board, which you touched on earlier, but you're now chair and currently chair of that company. And you're also non-executive chair of Northern Star, where you took over from Bill Beeman. When we look at the West Farmers role to begin with, did you find that the business had changed a lot since you'd been out of the business in terms of your role? Or did, were you you're still fairly familiar with it when you took that role as chair? Well, I'd followed the company from afar, obviously, and after I'd retired, it took over Coles and became a much different company, much more retail-focused. But I found when I went back that the culture was still the same, that there's still a very strong shareholder-focused culture, but as I mentioned earlier, a strong focus on community, on other stakeholders and so on. And so I think the role of Rob Scott is not very different at all to the role that I had. The divisions run pretty autonomously. The CEO of West Farmers chairs the divisional boards that operate as boards of, you know, significant companies. 
And uh, the thing runs, I think, extremely well. It's a, a great pleasure to be back there because the company is in very good shape financially, balance sheet and so on, but also, I think, in its culture. It's a, it's a pretty unique culture, actually. And how do you think that culture stems back to what you were talking about right back in the early days and that's been maintained? It's something that West Farmers must work on as a group. Yeah, it's sort of embedded, I think. When you take over another company, like in this case, Australian Pharmaceutical Industries recently, we have a people go in, you know, Rob Scott goes in and we talk about the way we operate companies, the way we think about customers and so on. And it seems to work. I think, you know, it's also part of the remuneration systems. People are rewarded not on empire building, but on return on capital. And and that's an important difference, I think, to many other companies where the sort of objective seems to be, well, we're the third biggest and we want to be the second biggest. Uh, you'd never hear that in any of the West Farmers businesses. Yes. So I think it is fairly pervasive. And as I say, I was really pleased to come back and find that that sort of culture is very little changed from when I left. And your role with Northern Star? Well, I was delighted to be approached. Bill Beeman actually had a couple of meetings with me and said they were looking for a chair when they, you know, they'd merged with Saracen and they were now one of the world's 10 biggest gold miners and would I be interested? And so I agreed to come on board. It was back to the old roots really. When I did geology, I I'd studied hard rock and soft rock, hard rock being mining and soft rock really oil and gas. Right. And I pursued the oil and gas line because the mining industry had collapsed in uh, 1971. So it was back, it was 50 years actually, when I went underground again at Kalgoorlie, it was 50 years since I'd been <laughs> underground there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so it was sort of closing the circle, returning to the roots. And I've enjoyed being there because uh, it's a great company. I think it has huge potential and terrific assets and balance sheet and really good people. And I'm enjoying making a contribution. Great. Fantastic. So, as I say, I'm conscious of time, but Michael, I, I do have some rapid fire questions just to round us out. Rapid fire, we don't need too much detail, but I'd be interested in your views. And I'm sure most of our listeners would be very interested in your views as well. Some of the topics that become front of mind when we get to talk to someone of your qualification and your depth of career and your achievements Australia is a destination to do business. And from maybe from a perspective of foreign investment, perception, and then that leads to the extension of government. How do you think we're travelling? I think we could do a lot better. We've got some real issues currently, I think, in workplace relations. For example, enterprise awards, which are people are sort of abandoning because of the complexities of the better off overall test. In regulation, which is far too cumbersome, I think in a whole tax system, which taxes individual effort too highly and we have a whole lot of inefficient taxes and you know we had the Henry report probably a decade ago now with a hundred recommendations only which a couple have been enacted and we really need to have reform particularly in those three areas to be a more attractive destination. Right it's very interesting and, and what about the foreign investment side are we seeing that we're 
limiting yourself in that regard or do you feel like we're open enough? Do people feel like they can invest in Australia? Well, I think people feel they can. Australia's always relied on foreign investment and we wouldn't have grown nearly as much and been as successful if we hadn't had it. And there have been you know, instances where foreign investors have been put off. The Huawei issue, I think, personally justifiable, but no doubt caused some people to think twice about investing. But on the whole, Australia is still in a very open economy, inviting foreign investment. But I think if we could achieve further reforms of the economy, uh, we'd be even more attractive. Thanks. Michael, very well documented, but we're in a cycle of rising interest rates and rising inflation. How do you think we're going to weather this? It's quite an interesting point of time, given what we've seen in terms of stimulus, particularly when we talk about the effect of inflation. I'd say that with regards to consumer debt levels and how they're placed and the big banks, which you've got a lot of experience in. Yeah, I tend to be pretty cautious about the outlook. I was at a presentation yesterday where an economist pointed to the fact that if you look at the indebtedness of individuals compared to income, it wasn't at the sort of peak it's been in the past, and so there wasn't really a problem. The problem with that sort of analysis is that it's based on averages, and what's important is what happens at the margin. So... Over the last few years, many people have become heavily indebted during times of very low interest rates. And with interest rates rising, I think it's likely we'll see some real pain at the margin. And that gives rise to very negative newspaper articles, for example, about house prices falling or a recession and so on, all of which has an effect on people's mentality and they keep their hands in their pockets. So I think, I think it's reasonably likely that we'll see a real slowdown in consumption in Australia and hopefully not a recession, but that's a worldwide risk really yes. as uh, central banks put up rates and you've got at the same time you know, huge increases in things like sea freight, in uh, energy prices and so on and food crises in some countries. So I think we're in for a pretty rough time. I said over the last couple of years, I've never known a time of greater uncertainty in business because of COVID, but I think we're faced with real uncertainty at the moment because of those other factors. Luckily, Australia, I think, is in pretty good shape compared to others. As a company, West Farmers is in very good shape compared to many others in terms of its balance sheet. But I think it's a time to be cautious. Of course, all downturns open up opportunities. And so where's a company at West Farmers and Northern Star attuned to that possibility? But as I said, I tend to be pretty cautious about that. Yes. You touched on supply chain restrictions. And we talked about how the cost of, say, for example, bringing in a container of goods into Australia has risen quite significantly. How do you see this unfolding and when do you think there might be opportunities for it to return to some sort of normal level? I think that issue will be with us for quite a while, actually. And we've had as well the uh, microchip issues, shortage of those, which has has caused shortage of vehicle sales and so on. All of those things take time to work through the system. 
But increased energy prices are probably with us for quite a while because of the situation with Russia. Might I say, however, none of this is forecastable. One thing I've learnt over my decades in business is that no one can predict anything with any certainty. And that goes for the Reserve Bank, as we've seen with their 2024 comments about interest rates and their constantly changing predictions about inflation and so on. The bottom line of all of that is that as a company, you've got to make sure that you're in good financial shape for whatever happens. And so if we do have a prolonged situation where freight, international freight rates are high, where supply may be constrained, you've got to make sure you've got a good balance sheet, you've got to make sure your inventory management is appropriate for whatever might happen. Yes. And so on. Yeah. That is a good segue into where we were talking about our reliance on global stability or global instability, for example. We're seeing a little bit of global instability at the moment. And part of the areas that we're importing goods, for example, is China, but we're also selling goods to China as well. We've got the Russian-Ukraine conflict, which could have the consequence of a food shortage in parts of the world. How do you think we're placed in terms of the global stability or global instability that we're facing at the moment? I think it works two ways. Firstly, Australia is a commodity exporter and the turmoil in the world is causing commodity prices to be high and therefore our balance of payments is favoured. But at the end of the day, Australia's economy is absolutely intertwined with other economies, China in particular. As you say, we export a huge amount to China, but we import a huge amount as well. And if there were any conflict with China, the effects on Australia's economy would be absolutely devastating. Now, one hopes that's not going to happen, but surprising things do happen. You know, I think Xi's interventions in Hong Kong were not expected and people would have said are quite unlikely to occur. Putin's invasion of Ukraine is outrageous and, you know, completely unacceptable, but it's occurred because of some madness, I reckon, in the leadership. So I'd just say, hopefully, in, in the case of China, on which Australia is so interdependent, we won't see any moves that uh, will really disrupt trade in either direction because it would have a really serious effect here. Yes. Moving a little bit to the principles behind, when you are chair of an organisation such as the size of West Farmers, Northern Star, but in your previous roles as chair of Woodside, the role of management, culture, strategy, how do you look at, and, and delegation, I know there's a big sort of topic you can talk about and there's books written about it, but how do you look at it in a short sort of version, Michael, how do you look at your way of governance and management and relying on the job being done? Well, one thing's very clear. Companies are managed by management. Boards oversee management. I mean, sometimes I think, and I've said to other chairmen, what's pretty clear is that when a company is really successful, management is praised. If the company falters, the board is blamed. The fact is, Management is running the show and I used to think boards had really only one role and that's really because of my experience at West Farmers and that was to appoint the right CEO 
Fortunately, the West Farmers Board appointed the right CEOs for decades, people without huge egos but who are very competent and capable and the company's been successful as a result. But I realised as time went by, the board has a critical second role and that is holding management's feet to the fire. If you don't have a board comprised of very capable people who are able to ask the right questions, management will tend to relax and the I's won't get dotted and the T's won't get crossed. You need a situation where the management knows that by the time a proposal gets to the board, they're going to be asked piercing questions, not in a negative way, but in an inquiring way, and they better be able to answer them. If you have that sort of a board, management will make sure by the time they get there, they've done all the work that needs to be done. Yes. And so it's really important that you have a board that is able to keep management's focus, make sure the culture is right, the processes are right, people are thinking about risks and so on, and that the management is going to be held to account for all of those things in, a, in an effective way. That's a fantastic answer. You've alluded to that West Farmers has got it right with regards to the CEOs they've appointed. Does that succession planning start years ahead? Yeah, it tends to. And we've tended to have fairly long handover periods. You know, I think I probably announced I was retiring and Richard Goiter was announced as my successor maybe a year or nine months before I retired. And I'll never forget, about a week after I'd retired, Don Volte came up to see me and I was still in the CEO's office. And he said, I thought you'd gone. And I said, oh, no, we sort of we're transitioning, you know, (laughs) Richard doesn't mind. (laughs) It was pretty seamless. And so, but what I noticed is in the last three months of my tenure there, people were no longer coming to me. They were going to Richard because it became irrelevant as time went by. And that's how it ought to be. So we've always tended, or we've always uh, had internal succession, even though we've looked outside at potential candidates. And I think a well-run company ought to be able to appoint from within because they're bringing people up. And in a company like West Farmers, you've always got quite a few people who you'd hope. You've always got quite a few people who may be uh, CEOs eventually. Yes. And the trick is to hang on to them. And these days, of course, where there's a shortage of skills and there are more jobs than people actually at the moment, it's a really important issue to make sure you do hang on to people. Yes. Thanks a lot, Michael. I'm going to digress across to family. So you've got four beautiful kids, Tom, Anna, Kate and Amelia. Mm -hmm. 13 grandchildren. 13 grandchildren. How are you handling all that? And a stepson (laughs) in Jacob as well. Well, fortunately, all of them, all four kids, their partners, 13 grandchildren, my stepson Jacob, are all in Perth. Right. It's pretty unusual, actually, given they've all pursued professional sort of careers and most of my colleagues tend to have kids spread around. I mean, interestingly, in in our family, below mum and dad, who are both deceased, there are uh, 108 people. That is, the seven of us, partners, kids, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, partners along the way, and we all get together on the Sunday before Christmas. And of the 108, 
and I hesitate because there's always a few more being born, but uh, <laughs> all except about two or three live in Perth, even though 20 or 30 would have lived overseas or interstate at yes. different times, they've all gravitated back here. And so that's been, I, I think it's a fabulous thing actually. And having my grandchildren here means that we do see them and, and they know who we are and so on. We have relationship. Oh, it sounds very tight-knit and a beautiful family environment that you've got. It is. Yeah, it's it's great. And, I mean, I will note that your daughter, Kate's uh, following his, her grandfather and uncle into politics and, and it's been successful. So that must be very inspiring. Well, it is and uh, it was a pretty tough task. I thought, actually, Kate wouldn't be able to win the seat because it was such a short time available to be known. But she did win it and really against the odds. So I think she, she's going to have a pretty challenging and enjoyable time in Canberra for the next three years and good luck to her. Absolutely, absolutely. It's amazing how... Oh, by the way, Tim, I should go back to your comment about fabulous family situation. I, I remember saying to my mother before she died, you know, Mum, I thought when you had children and... and you brought them up pretty well and they turned out well and they met someone nice and married and, and they got a good job and settled down, you'd stop worrying about them. And she said, Mike, I worry about each one of you every day. Yes. That's parenthood, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, we often talk about this on Finding the Front, but... How have you been able to balance that work life over your career? And it's a it's not necessarily an easy answer for, for people that are high achievers because yeah. there's bits and pieces that get sacrificed along the way, but not through any fault of anyone's, but it's just part of the role. Yeah, it is. And um, I'm not sure there's a sort of simple answer to it. I'll tell you something instructive though. Bruce Robinson wrote a terrific book called Fathering from the Fast Lane in which he went out and interviewed people who were in sort of senior jobs about this issue and he's quoted me in the book. He interviewed me and he's quoted me in various things. Anyway, my daughter Kate came to me probably five years after the book was published and she said, hey, Dad, I've just been reading this book, Fathering from the Fast Lane, and towards the end I came across this quote, this ridiculous quote from you where you said, one of my regrets is that because I was so busy, I didn't, I don't think I had enough time to go and watch the kids play sport or go to their concerts and so on. Dad, that's ridiculous. You came to all of those things. Yeah. And so it was a bit of an eye-opener for me because you developed this idea yourself about how your kids might have been perceiving it and they might have exactly the opposite idea that you were fully involved. Engaged. Yeah. yeah, and so maybe you can be too engaged as well. Um, maybe there's time to let them go and do their own thing and so on. I found that quite an instructive sort of experience. But it is a challenge and I, I think I've maintained a balance. So for example, I when I retired as CEO of West Farmers after 13 years, I'd not only had no leave accrued, I'd started eating into a bit of my long service leave. So I always took my annual leave and I found that it, a great thing where you can actually get away and stop thinking about things and your mind opens up a bit when yes. you're not worrying about day-to-day -day details. 
Michael, outside of family and your current roles, I know you love the beach. Yeah, anything else you're finding interesting at the moment? Woodwork, I know, that you, is a bit of a passion of yours. Well, I love woodwork and I've made a lot of furniture over the years for friends and family and uh, I find it really rewarding because it's a great distraction and if you're designing something, I'm, I'm currently building some circular garden benches which are the most complicated things I've ever built, full of curves and compound angles and so on and there's a heck of a lot of maths involved and a lot of measuring and thinking and so on. And it's a very good distraction from corporate life or other parts of life. Yes. And the great thing about woodwork is you can actually work on it, put it down, go away for a week or a month and come back and it's still there and keep going. Same piece of wood still there, the same problem. (laughs) (laughs) The carpenter's motto is uh, measure twice, cut once. Uh, Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes uh, when I've measured once and cut once, I've regretted not following it. (laughs) Michael, we could keep talking, at least I could keep talking with you for hours because there's so much knowledge and wisdom and it's been one of those conversations where I've learned a lot and I know the listeners would have really enjoyed just listening to your your thoughts but the way you're able to express them and share them in light of so much experience, so much experience garnered over so many years in such high-level roles, but roles that are diverse across a broad cross-section of industry and business. We've talked about oil. We've talked about the diversified businesses within West Farmers, education, the challenges we have going forward, but also the opportunities. I really just want to say on behalf of Euros Hartleys, thank you very much for taking the time to join us because I know that you are a very busy person and, um, and it means a lot, and I'm sure all the listeners would, would say the same. So thanks a lot for your time. Well, thanks, Tim. I've very much enjoyed the chat. Good on you. Thanks, yeah. Michael. See you later. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.